Hello, how's it going everybody? Welcome back. Welcome back to episode 28 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America, and I gotta start again with a correction. <sighs> I'm getting sick of this. You know, my problem is is that I'm just winging it. You know, like a lot of times I have kind of an outline. I know what I'm, my main points are. I know what I'm going to talk about. You know, I have a general theme I'm going for. And it's been pretty successful. But sometimes I'll rattle something off in the moment that, you know, I thought was accurate. But turns out I got it confused with somebody else or... Uh, you know, it's usually not the message that I mess up. It's usually the person that said it. So apologies again. Oh, in a previous podcast, I said that James Warburg was a bonesman. And pff, eh, banker was the correct answer, ladies and gentlemen, banker. Uh, so here, I, now I have to introduce uh, James Warburg to you people. Uh, and we're going to learn together, because I biffed another one on a previous podcast. <sighs> James Paul Warburg is a German-born American, was a German-born American banker. He was well-known for being the financial advisor to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His father was banker Paul Warburg, member of the Warburg family, and Paul was is known as the father of the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah, I messed up on the Bonesman part, but, you know, turns out he's part of the big club. Shit, he basically created the big club. <laughs> His family did anyway. After World War II, uh, Warburg helped organize the Society for the Prevention of World War III <laughs> in support of the Morgenthau Plan. So... You can go look up uh, the Morgenthau plan if you feel so inclined. Uh, Warburg born, Hamburg, Germany, educated Middlesex School, Harvard University, served Navy Flying Corps during World War I, uh, and then entered a career in business. So, I mean, I can't hate the guy for serving his country honorably. Uh, he was the first National Bank of Boston... Uh, he was there from 1919 to 1921, became vice president of International Acceptance Bank, yada, yada, uh, vice president or vice chairman of the board for Bank of Manhattan Company later in his life, uh, became the financial advisor to uh, President Roosevelt. Warburg left government, however, 1934, having come to oppose certain policies of the New Deal. He was opposed to political non-interventionism. However, and re-entered government service in 1941 as special assistant to the coordinator of information, William Joseph Donovan, the coordinator of information, when propaganda responsibilities were transferred to the Office of War Information, he became its overseas branch deputy director. After the end of the war, he wrote numerous books on U.S. foreign policy and was outspoken advocate for nuclear disarmament, 1963, along with Sears uh, Company heir Philip Stern. He helped to found the Washington-based Institute for Policy Studies. Warburg was a member of the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations. Gained some notice February 1950 when he appeared in front of a U.S. Senate committee on foreign relations in which he said, we shall have world government whether or not we like it. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by consent, by consent, or by conquest, unquote. And that's why I brought him up in the first place. So there you have it, people. Meet James Warburg, another fun internationalist character here on the Politics and Punk Rock podcast. You like how I deliver this to, to like like it's an actual show to you guys? Like these are like invented characters in in, in my podcast in, in the show, right? But you know, I'm presenting I'm presenting them to you that way because you know people easily forget that. This is real life. These are real people that actually lived in reality. And there, there is a, a history 
about them that you can look up and research because there is nothing new in this world except that history that you do not know and have not looked up and have not studied and have not taken five minutes out of your oh-so-busy life with your face in a screen to, you know, educate yourself on. So that's why I'm here, people. I'm going to educate you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to educate you. I'm going to motivate you. We're going to learn together. Um, so that's that. Moving on. Today, episode 28, a gentleman by the name of Ezra Klein uh, has a podcast. Uh, he is a writer for the New York Times, I believe. And he recently did a podcast uh, where he interviewed Noam Chomsky. And I have, like many people, a very complicated relationship with Mr. Chomsky. Um, he is one of the most important intellectuals still alive today. Uh, I agree with many, many, many people on that point. Uh, he is one of the most brilliant uh, minds the human race has ever seen. And which inherently brings with it some controversy and some conflict and some disagreement. And I think it's healthy disagreement. And I think these things need to be talked about. And, you know, people need to dive deep. And if you don't get the time to dive deep on subjects, you know, that's why I'm here, people. I'm going to dive deep on this podcast today because <laughs> I listened to this whole thing through probably four or five times. And I took a lot of notes because... I love the depth and the breadth of what uh, Chomsky talks about on this podcast. And I really like that Ezra Klein kind of takes a devil's advocate role from time to time. Uh, you're going to hear it in this podcast. He's going to kind of challenge Chomsky uh, with you know, an alternative perspective on some of the stuff that he talks about. And I found that very, very uh, entertaining. Uh Mostly because listening to Chomsky just drone on about very uh, smart people topics, uh, it, you know he's t he's he's getting old. You know he's he's been tough to listen to for a while, but you know he's getting older, and I'm not taking anything away from him. But you know, it's kind of like watching paint dry, listening to him talk. Sometimes I I mean I love I Ch know him, Chomsky, sir. I love you, but man, you're tough to listen to sometimes, man. That's all it is. So. You know, I, I, I've clipped this podcast uh, in very specific places because I kind of want Chomsky to tell you his point of view on something. And then there's a little Ezra Klein uh, thrown in there from his podcast. Uh, but I pretty much took the, the greatest hits of this and I want to expound on certain things that Chomsky discusses in this podcast. So um, I hope you guys enjoy this. So uh, this is from... Noam Chomsky's Theory of the Good Life from the Ezra Klein Show. Um, and here's what Ezra says about Chomsky. How do you introduce a guy like Noam Chomsky? Perhaps you start here. In 1979, the New York Times called him arguably the most important intellectual alive today. More than 40 years later, Chomsky, now 92, is still putting his dent in the world, writing books, giving interviews, and trying and attempting to change minds. Uh, there are different sides to Chomsky. Boy, is that ever true. He's a world-renowned linguist who revolutionized his field at MIT. He's a political theorist who's been a sharp critic of American foreign policy for decades, and he has written many, many books discussing that. Uh, he is an anarchist who believes in a radically different way of ordering our society. He's a pragmatist who pushes leftists to vote for Joe, who pushed rather leftists to vote for Joe Biden in 2020, and has described himself as ha as having a rather conservative attitude towards social change. He is very much himself, and I mean. <clears throat> I mean, there's so much to unpack right there. So the, he's a self-proclaimed anarchist, and he discusses, you know, uh, he defines what he thinks an anarchist is uh, in what you're about to hear. And I like that. I, I, I tend to agree with him on that point. Uh, it says here he's a pragmatist. I, I disagree with that. Uh, I do not think that on certain topics, Chomsky is very pragmatic. 
I think he's very idealistic uh, in some ways, and I think he's very pragmatic in others. Um, you know, obviously he's he wasn't for uh, Trump, and I don't really think he's for Republicanism or conservatism at all either. Um, I think he is the king of what you might call a left libertarian or a left anarchist. Uh, Chomsky is going to tell you that he hates the word libertarian because uh, he is, you know, he he believes that the Austrian economists and people like Ludwig uh, von Mises and other uh, libertarian thinkers, um, you know, he, he thinks that they're in agreement that their view of the world uh, is you know, the ideal version of anarchy and anarchism and libertarianism is to be a master of slaves. And I completely disagree with him that that is how libertarianism should be defined. Um, I like his definition of anarchism, but I have lots of problems with his definition of libertarianism. And I'll touch on it here and there uh, as we go through this. Um, Chomsky's going to talk about a lot of things I've talked about in the past. He's going to talk about, um, let me bring it up here. Uh, he's going to talk, he's going to, the first clip that I'm going to play for you, um, he seconds, uh, things that I've played and talked about in the past from John Dewey and from Carl Sagan, uh, on the school system. Uh, so that'll be an interesting point. Uh, I'm going to play, play you a clip from, uh, him discussing um, legitimate power dynamics and legitimate authority, uh, and that's going to tie into his de definition of anarchism. He's going to talk about Edward Bernays and propaganda and engineering consent. He's going to talk about Walter Lippmann and manufacturing consent, uh, You know, who's the inspiration for Chomsky's book on the topic. Um, I'm going to play a clip where Klein kind of... Uh, um, Ezra Klein kind of pushes him on his critiques of capitalism. And, um, you know, he, he's going to say that, you know, not all uh, media attempts at manufacturing consent, uh, you know, it's not, that's not all that's going on. Like there actually is legitimate business going on and legitimate attempts for advertising to have positive inf impacts, uh, which Chomsky feels is just, an attempt to uh, um, generate revenue for companies, and, and he's he says that capitalism is very self-destructive, and you know he's right in ways. He's right, it is, you know, and that's why you have to temper it with some type of representative democracy. That's the beauty of our system, you know, and you know it's very interesting. Your brain's gonna do flippity flues on this one, people. I mean, Chomsky's one of those guys who, who. He makes you just tear apart your own arguments. And, um, you know, it is very complex thinking. Uh, you know, Chomsky's not a simple reduced thing, you know, complex topics down to simple uh, talking points and simple solutions. He's not that guy. And that's why he's so respected from people on both sides of the aisle. Um, he's going to talk about... Uh, his relationship with the job contract, and and you know he calls it renting yourself out to a, uh, an owner, which is basically feudalism and slavery. And uh, he doesn't think that there's any, you know, he thinks it's exploitation. He doesn't think there's any choice involved with the free association of the job contract. And I disagree on Chomsky <laughs> uh, on that as well. Um, I don't think there's any exploitation going on in a situation where you can freely choose to leave it. Yeah, maybe you're not going to be making any money for a while, but then you can go choose a different job contract. You know, Chomsky acts as if, you know, all jobs are the same and no matter what job you do, you're 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 you know, you're whoring yourself out to your, to some owner who, you know, is accepting of you under his own or her own whatever circumstances. And I just think that's a really pessimistic like you know, not, not constructive view of, you know, a worker's relationship with, you know, the product of their labor. But again, you know, we can go back and forth about socialism versus communism all day long. I mean, we've already done it on this podcast uh, a few times. But so anyway, okay, um, I'm kind of just babbling about 
the outlining in the show for you. Let's start it off. Let's uh, let's start with um, this first clip uh, from Chomsky. He's going to talk about, um, I think, education is where he's going on this one. So uh, here we go. Give me one sec. And, oh, yeah, really quick. So... Uh, basically, they're, they're, they were talking about uh, language and talking about how, you know, Noam Chomsky's a linguist and they're kind of talking about how, um, you know, language is how we understand human nature, how we, uh, you know, are separate from the animal kingdom and how we can reason and how we should be cooperative and all this stuff. And uh, he's going to, you know, pretty much say that's why language is so important. And then Ezra Klein's going to ask him, uh, what he asks him. So here we go. Very strikingly in our normal use of language. If that is so fundamental to our nature, as opposed to just one of the, the pieces of our nature, then why do we, why do maybe I spend so much time stifling those tendencies, you know, doom scrolling on Twitter and watching TV shows and zoning out moving into single-family houses far away from everybody. If we want freedom and we want creativity, why do we often gravitate towards things that feel like they take those away from us? Well, a lot of it is beaten out of us from childhood. Take a look at children, constantly asking why. They want explanations. They want to understand things. You go to school, you're regimented. You're taught this is the way you're supposed to behave, not other ways. The institutions of the society are constructed so as to reduce, modify, limit the efforts at control of one's own destiny. Take something as simple as having a job. We consider that now the highest goal in life. High school student asks your advice. You say, you better be prepared to get a job. And for about 2,000 years, from the Romans into the late 19th century, the idea of having a job was considered an abomination. You're placing yourself in a position of subordination to a master. It's a fundamental attack on human dignity, on human rights. No person with any integrity and self-respect should submit themselves to this. These are old issues. Actually, uh, David Hume, my favorite philosopher, and uh, wrote one of maybe the first modern tract in what we now call political science, Foundations of Government. He opened it, the first paragraph, by posing a kind of a paradox. He said he's surprised by the easiness with which men subordinate themselves to governments and to other powers. He says, since power is in the hands of the governed, the general population, why do they submit themselves to power and authority? And he says, the only answer for this, he says, is enforced consent. Society is structured so that people will consent to what is in opposition to their fundamental nature, subordinate themselves to others. Later, this was uh, Antonio Gramsci and his Mussolini's prison cells uh, developed the same conception in much detail, talking about how what he called hegemonic common sense is imposed in opposition to people's needs and rights. Let me ask you about... Uh, so, uh, hegemonic common sense. I absolutely love that term that is such a perfect way of describing the status quo every society people every civilization has one and it's not universal it is created fabricated by the ruling class in order to keep that status quo that culture in place. And our constitutional republic and and the entire idea of freedom 
people, we this the, this experiment in democracy and freedom in the United States is the idea was to do exactly the opposite of that. I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how people can't see what Chomsky's talking about right here. Like, everything I've been talking about on this podcast, Chomsky just just laid it out right there, summed it up, put it into historical terms, put it into the historical context, and he's going to keep doing it. Uh, you're going to see coming up. But, I mean, I love that. I mean, that, that is one of the points that I absolutely could not agree more with Noam Chomsky. And it actually, that idea actually challenges my own feelings on anarchism and on, um, you know, how, what I believe to be the correct, for lack of a better word, level of uh, legitimate authority in our lives or, you know, or, or, or the leg- legitimate authority that a government has. Um, because, you know, I'm... It's kind of like what uh, Dave Smith says. He's like, you know, people on the left think I'm on, I'm on the right. I'm a righty, and people on the right think I'm a lefty. And that's kind of what, you know, minarchism, anarchism, libertarians, uh, you know, free thinkers, constitutional, uh, you know, people that believe in America and the Constitution. You know, I'm not talking about the far right winger, you know, you know the group that that, you know, Everyone wants to easily put all right thinkers or libertarian thinkers into that group of nut jo- far left nut jobs, and it happens. Same thing on the left, you know. The progressive movement is, you know, I'm sure that there are very pragmatic Democrats still living out there. I know for, for a fact they are. I have a lot of friends. Yeah, I have a lot of friends that are Democrats. Am I critical of them? Absolutely. Uh, do I believe that my my criticism of their free choices? Uh, in believing what they think uh, is something that uh, requires me to turn my back on them and not be friends with them? No. And that's exactly the problem. That's exactly what Divide and Conquer's agenda is, is to divide us so that they can continue to conquer us. They don't want us reaching across the aisle, people. They don't want us having conversations and being cooperative. And being cooperative... And listening to what the working class wants is just something that is going to have to be part of the conversation, you far right wingers. You're going to have to meet in the middle too. You're going to have to stop saying, oh, I'm not going to even talk to those guys because they're left wing nut jobs. You can't do that. Because then you're just as guilty of putting people, you're just as guilty of doing exactly what the left does. You're just as guilty of putting people into a little box so that you can label them and then you can dismiss anything that they have to say. That is the problem, people. That's the problem. Uh, So, I love that. Moving on. This next clip... um, I don't want to set it up. I think they're still kind of talking about the same things. So here we go. Life is complicated. (laughs) Fair. The relation between you and your children, that is a relation of authority and domination. And it has some justification. It's not illegitimate authority. It can be used illegitimately, but it is at the core of it. Yes, there's a relation of domination, which has its justification for survival. It can be used in such a way as to encourage independence, creativity, or it can be used in a way to impose authority and control. The child will pick away within these conflicting influences. However, when you move to the structure of society, say the creation of wants by corporate power, there's no legitimacy to that relation of authority. That's a relation of simple power. Actually, we have a huge industry in the United States, public relations industry, advertising industry. We know what it's for. Its founders told us. Uh, The founders of the industry, like uh, Edward Bernays in the 1920s, when the industry was developing, one of the main leaders uh, wrote a major book on this called Propaganda. In those days, propaganda didn't have the 
negative connotations that it has today, just meant persuasion. Uh, he discusses there what he calls engineering of consent. He says our task as responsible men is to engineer the consent of the masses. He did it, for example, by a, a major project which succeeded in getting women to smoke. And models walking down Fifth Avenue, holding cigarettes, saying this is the way to be a modern woman, and so on. And he did succeed in getting women to smoke. It's one of the first major successes in engineering consent. We can count up the number of corpses that led to. At the same time that he was writing, the leading public intellectual of the 20th century, Walter Lippmann, was writing on what he called manufacture of consent which he described as a new art in the practice of democracy. It's a way to ensure, as he put it, that the bewildered herd, the general population, will be controlled, that we, the responsible men, will not be subjected to the trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd. Now, their task is to be spectators, not participants. Let me try to hold two pieces of this together. So, wow. You know, I like I like where he's going. I like where he's going. Um, let's keep moving on. A lot of that probably sounds very familiar to you guys. Um, so this next piece, um, they're going to kind of keep talking about similar themes. Uh, Ezra Klein's going to kind of propose a different idea. He's going to kind of craftily um, challenge what Chomsky says on the topic. And I found this part of his podcast to be quite interesting. So here we go. The show has advertising on it. My paper has advertising in it. If you go back to mid-century American economics and critiques of capitalism, there's much more of a sense of advertising as a shaping force. I still like John Kenneth Galbraith's The Affluent Society a lot, in part for, for these reasons. I mean, I think it understands something that we've lost, which is that the wants that arise within capitalism are not just natural. The part of this I would push on a little bit is they're also not just manufactured. I mean, I've started publications. I've worked a lot with advertisers who were advertising they don't have that much control. They try a lot of things. Some of them work, some of them don't. If you get people hooked on cigarettes, the advertising helps, but the nicotine's really doing a lot of work for you. But, you know, there are some tons of movies that have gigantic advertising budgets and they flop. There are tons of political projects and political candidates. Like in my city of California, Meg Whitman spent about $150 million of her own money to lose by more than 10 percentage points. I mean, Jeb Bush's campaign spent about the same amount only to see him drop out early in the primary. So there is a relationship here where the public has some power, too. And what ends up happening, it, it always seems to me, is sort of in the Venn diagram of what power wants, of what there's money to try to get people to want, but also what the, the public wants. And, and a lot of that stuff is not, is not great, but I don't think it's quite as much a, a capacity for mind control as some of the more totalizing versions of this theory hold. Well, I agree with that. These are efforts. Efforts don't have to succeed. But what we're talking about is the massive, extraordinary effort that goes into creating wants, shaping opinion, ensuring that doctrines are not questioned. A separate question is whether it works. Well, that's a mixed story. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But underlying it is the fact that one of the major factors, the components of our Social order is a huge attempt to manufacture consent, to create wants, to ensure doctrinal conformity. And it often does work. And that is exactly what I've been trying to tell you people. That is exactly what I have been trying to get across to the minds of the masses <laughs> since episode one, people. I'm not the only person saying this stuff. People on the left are saying this stuff. People on the right are saying this stuff. The people that are saying this stuff are the disciplined, interested, curious, courageous, the seekers, 
of truth. Or what did Manly P. Hall say? The truth seekers of all times. Agree or disagree with Noam Chomsky, people. Uh, I highly recommend you people go read his stuff. And uh, develop your own relationship with the man. Because he will challenge you. He will challenge you. And that is one of his gifts. Um, okay, I think right there I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, we're going to continue on uh, with this podcast uh, on the Ezra Klein Show where he talks to Noam Chomsky. And uh, we're going to talk about some stuff that he says that I do not necessarily agree with. When we come back on the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Um, in the previous segment, I, I said uh, I talked about socialism and communism. I meant socialism and capitalism again. I made that flub. If you guys heard me say socialism and communism, uh, I meant capitalism. Oops. Um, okay, so the next clip... I want to play. This is when we're going to get into some of the good stuff. This is going to be Chomsky talking about anarchism. He's going to define it. He's going to talk about legitimate authority and what what makes authority legitimate. He's going to talk about legitimate authority must justify its legitimacy. It has a burden of proof. And illegitimate authority should be exposed, challenged, and overcome. You know, Chomsky's a guy that thinks that careful deliberation amongst all involved parties is the best way to make a situation work. That's why he's for workers' ownership of industry. And, you know, it's very interesting, like... When you really think about that, it almost is what the idea of complete freedom to associate would naturally, uh, you know, how it would naturally play out. You know, maybe that's where, um, you know, workers' labor ownership of industries uh, might not be such a bad idea. It might make everybody happy, those on the left and the right. You ever think about that, people? It's deep. I know that is a deep, deep, deep thought. But if 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 not identifying as a party and if just being a sovereign individual, a free thinker who educates themselves and has conversations with other like-minded individuals so that you can come to a cooperative uh, judgment call on the best course of action to achieve a goal, yada, 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 right? In an ideal, perfect world, that's the goal, right? Well, how come that's not the case then in the United States, right? So here we go. Here's Chomsky in his own words. You're an anarchist. How do you define anarchism? Anarchism, the way I understand it, is pretty close to truism. That says, and I think everybody if they think about it, will accept at least this much. We begin with assuming that any structure of authority and domination has to justify itself. It's not self-justifying. It has a burden of proof. It has to show that it's legitimate. So if uh, you're taking a walk with your kid and the kid runs into the street and you grab his arm and pull him back. That's an exercise of authority, but it's legitimate. You can have a justification. And there are such cases where there is justification. But if you look closely, most of them do not. 
Most of them are what David Hume, uh, Edward Bernays, and Walter Lippmann, Adam Smith, and others have been talking about over the centuries, namely illegitimate authority. Well, illegitimate authority should be exposed, challenged, overcome. That's true in all of life. We've talked about a few cases, like, say, the workplace, where it's illegitimate, should not be tolerated, wasn't tolerated, until it was driven out of people's heads by force and violence. Well, okay, what's anarchism? Just pushing these questions to their limit. Who decides when authority is legitimate? In some of the more classic theories of democracy, if you have the consent of the governed, then the exercise of authority on their behalf is legitimate. I think there are many of those cases that you wouldn't agree with. So under anarchism, how are those decisions made? Here we go back to the first question you raised about the unique human properties, like the capacity for thought. You have to think it through. There's no algorithm. Life is too complicated for simple algorithms. You take a look at the situation, think it through, deliberate it with others in a free society where people have access to information, have gained control of their lives. They think it through and decide. Take the case of subordinating yourself to a master for most of your waking life. Well, working men in the 19th century, young women from the farms, factory girls, they were called, they did think it through. And we can see what their thinking was by reading the very uh, eloquent and uh, forceful literature that they created. They bitterly attacked the imposition of what they called monarchic rule in the workplace, where their basic rights were taken away by subordination to a master, which they regarded as not fundamentally different from slavery, except that it was maybe temporary, you could get free of it. The working people held that we should move towards a what they called a cooperative commonwealth, where people control their own lives. Workers should control the enterprises in which they work. Their conception was that anyone who appropriates the labor of someone else is in a position of illegitimate authority. And uh, out of that came the whole picture. Well, that's how you answer the questions, by deliberation among people who are putting their minds to work. Can you assure the right answer will come out? Of course not. But people do come to very different answers with this. I mean, you talk about anarchism as a, the libertarian wing of socialism, and then I know people who end up being the, the libertarian wing of capitalism and, and end up very much on the other side, and they're, they're smart folks too. And one of the critiques you'll hear is that you need a certain amount of hierarchy and organization, which I think in many cases you would call domination, for complex economic levels of structure. So say developing and then distributing an mRNA vaccine during a pandemic, you need a certain amount of like true hierarchy for that. And not everybody can be equal in that decision making. Somebody needs to run the organization, somebody needs to run the lab. And that that's difficult if you're sort of doing every decision sort of from scratch in real time. How do you think about that trade-off between complexity and deliberation? I don't think it's a trade-off if it's done in a free democratic society. A free society can select people to have administrative and other authority to take over parts of the concern for the common good, and they can be recalled, but they're under popular control. They're not there because their grandfather built railroads, or because in some uh, they managed to uh, finesse the market so that they ended up with a ton of money. They're not there for that reason. They're there because they're delegated under popular authority, under recall. You can have any amount of structure of hierarchy and domination you want. You have this in, uh, for example, worker-controlled enterprises. Some of them huge. Take, uh, say, Mondragon, the largest of them. Been around for about 60 years in northern Spain. Worker-owned, worker-managed, huge conglomerate industrial production, uh, banks, housing, uh, hospitals, everything. It's not perfect by any means, but it does have, it's based on the fundamental principle of popular democratic control and uh, authorization to carry out managerial functions 
when needed. Actually, you have that in just about any decently functioning research lab in a university. Works pretty much the same way. Maybe a department chair is chosen to handle the administrative work. If faculty doesn't like him, you pick somebody else. These are certainly possible structures of all kinds. They don't undermine the possibility of organization. In fact, anarchist societies should be highly organized, but under popular control of a free, informed community, which can interact without illegitimate forces controlling them. Boy, I mean, what do you think, people? I mean, Chomsky's one of those guys where, like, I can't, am I agreeing with him or am I disagreeing with him? You know, like, I like how Ezra Klein right there was like, well, you know, let's bring Chomsky back down from out of the clouds. Uh, you know, it, let's come back down to earth for a little bit and let's talk about how things actually work. And instead of this idealist, this idealist utopia of how you think things should work, I've talked about it for, I mean, at length. Anyone that has ever known me knows that this is everyday stuff for me. And, <clears throat> you know, that's, you know, worker-owned. You know, he, he mentioned Mondragon, that, that worker-owned, uh, you know, conglomerate in northern Spain. There's, there's an example in the world, you far righties, of a worker-owned cooperative uh, functioning quite well. And he said it's not perfect. But, you know, the model is, is you know, the basic idea of what he's talking about. And, you know, so put that, you know, I don't know how you want to rate things and, and judge and, and put things into scale and perspective, but it would be interesting, don't you think, to see how the infrastructure and the nuts and bolts of Mondragon and Northern Spain work when compared to a top-down CEO, you know, management and then worker, you know, capitalist business here in the United States with, you know, the goal of more profit and low overhead and the bottom line is more important than human life. You know, there's got to be a meet in the middle, people. There's got to be a meet in the middle. We're going to have to start having conversations about universal health care. We're going to have to start having conversations about jobs. And, you know, just how much is big tech and the innovation of, you know, increasingly more technological involvement of whatever in our lives, taking jobs away, automation. Well, what are the people going to do? How are they going to make money? How are you going to be an entrepreneur in a world where every industry is already monopolized and dominated by a small group of people who have consolidated their wealth and power over time? What are you going to do? Entrepreneurship's going away, people. The ability to own a home and start your own business for the future generations is a pipe dream. You're, you're kidding yourself if you think that that's a realistic uh, picture of what the future is going to be like for these young kids. I'm telling you, I don't think I'm going to have children, people. I'm afraid. I'm terrified of the world my child, if I had one, would grow up in. I mean, it's, it's, it's not looking good out there, people. And, you know, there he kind of talks about you know, the job contract not being legitimate. I just, I fundamentally disagree with Chomsky on that. I think his view is very, very, uh, you know, idealistic. And it's kind of a fairy tale of sorts. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful or to tear down his idea. I actually like his thinking. I just, you know... Everyone's got to do what they got to do in pursuit of their own personal goals, right? That's what economics is. Individuals pursuing their own separate interests, right? Well, what if I don't have anything? And for a while, I need to uh, sell my labor to a quote-unquote master for a wage in order to 
save money. Yeah, granted, the conditions might not be that good, but then you got to do a cost-benefit analysis. Is the juice worth the squeeze? The part that he leaves out and a lot of you lefties leave out is the personal responsibility part. You need to believe in yourself and believe in your capacities uh, to achieve your goals by your own hand without any help in the event that you lived in a world where you had no choice and you had to be 100% in control of your life. What do you got, people? Let's see what you got. You people that don't want to see what you got, you, you cowards, you spineless, follow the leader, lemming types out there, believe the propaganda as if it were the word of God. Maybe, maybe you are the belligerent masses. You know, maybe you are. You know, your activities are supposed to be separated from the ruling class, the enlightened, the illuminated minds among us. The mob, the rabble. George Carlin says, you know, I got a, I got a campaign slogan for you. Uh, the public sucks. Fuck hope. <laughs> Uh, so here we go. Here's the last clip I'm gonna play <laughs> uh, from Chomsky today, and I this is this part upsets me. Um, I I really don't like how he. I, I feel like Chomsky's too smart to have such a short-sighted opinion of Ludwig von Mises and the Austrian economists and the libertarian thinkers. Um, maybe. Maybe a few of them do feel the way that Chomsky uh, feel the way that Chomsky portrays them to be in this clip, but I, I disagree. I've read Rothbard, you know. I've read Mises, you know. I gotta go find the part where he he uses the term. The goal is to be uh, the master of slaves, is what Chomsky's gonna say. And can, can someone email me? Uh, the part of any of the of Mises, Ludwig von Mises's books where he says that I'd like to see that because clearly I wasn't paying attention. I just I disagree. I just I feel like that's a very short sighted view of you know and gr granted just like everything else there's going to be those cultish uh, fundamentalist types. It's like. You know, you can't be 100% libertarian on everything because it's not realistic. You know, I always I always say, yes, you have to stay true to principle, but there has to be wiggle room for human fallibility, people. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. We're going to err. We're going to fail. We're going to learn from our failure. We're going to get back on our feet. We're going to try again. I just, I feel like Chomsky's too smart to believe that the government can run the lives of the people, the sovereign individuals of this country, better than they can for themselves. Chomsky, you're too smart to really believe that. That's my main criticism of you, man. You are so absolutely brilliant, but you are, you know... What I say in a previous podcast, we're all idiot savants. This is the idiot side of you, Chomsky. I'm sorry. If somebody has some better uh, evidence and supporting statements that can get me off of this, I I'm all ears. I'd love to hear it. Email me, Andrew for America, 1984 at gmail.com. I would love to hear it. We're not all perfect, people. All of us have a little bit of ego. All of us have a little bit of evil deep down. Like we've talked about previously on a previous podcast. 
You got to temper it. You got to exercise tolerance. You got to exercise restraint. You have to agree in some way, shape, or form to a social contract of sorts. Or we're never going to figure this out. Ever. And it's only going to get worse. Here we go. Against my better judgment, I'm going to play this final clip from this podcast uh, with Chomsky defining libertarian uh, libertarianism uh, amongst a few other things. Here we go. So in a lot of classical economics, the idea is everything is built, or much of our economy anyway, is built on the, the freedom to contract. And if people freely chose to sign their name to something, then then who are we in the government or who are we in society to say anything about it? You use a, a concept that's been around in critiques of capitalism for a long time, but you don't hear it that often in the mainstream, which is wage slavery, arguing that these are not actually free choices. Can you talk a bit about the, the idea of wage slavery and where you differ from those who think our economy is built on, on the freedom to contract? Freedom of contract is a joke. Those who enter into the free contract have radically different power relations. One of them is saying, I own this place. You can rent yourself to me if I'm willing to accept you. The other is saying, I got a choice between renting myself to subordination to power or starving. Now that's freedom of contract. No, I'm exaggerating. It's not entirely like that. You know, there are lots of nuances, but that's it fundamentally. Uh, let me just describe to you an anecdote, if you don't mind. When I was a college student many years ago, I heard a lecture by the leading guru of uh, what's called libertarianism in the United States, which is radically different from the libertarian tradition. This is Ludwig von Mises, was giving a lecture on uh, why the government causes unemployment. says the problem of unemployment is entirely the fault of the government. Now, the government is imposing things like minimum wages, conditions in the workplace, uh, all sorts of things, and that imposes unemployment. Because if we had real freedom, real freedom of contract without government interference, if some guy is starving, and he could get a job for 10 cents an hour under horrible conditions, he'd pick taking the job. But the government won't let him. So the government is causing unemployment. And that was my introduction to what's called right-wing libertarian thought by the top master. And in fact, that's the basic view. You read the leading theorists, James Buchanan, one of the major thinkers in the what's called libertarianism here. I don't think that's the right word. He says quite plausibly that an economic system should be constructed so as to conform to human nature. That makes sense. And what's human nature? He tells us. He says, every person's highest ideal is to be the master of a world of slaves. That's our highest ideal, in case you didn't notice it. And therefore, we have to design a society so everyone is free to pursue this fundamental human nature as fully as possible. Well, it's a certain conception. It's not mine. I don't think it's yours. I don't think it's anybody's, frankly, unless you're caught up in this ideology. But yes, that's a point of view. And it should be deliberated along with the point of view of uh, the workers and farmers of 19th century America, who I think are much more representative of what's natural to humans. Well, let me offer one of the stronger justifications for capitalism, because I, I agree with you that that idea of freedom is so narrow as to be a mockery. I think the stronger argument people make for, for different forms of capitalism or, or mixed economies in the way we have them now, is it the same incentives that in many cases do lead to exploitation and do lead to inequality also drive technological and organizational innovation. And from generation to generation, it's those technological innovations, those organizational innovations that really change living standards. And it's not the government doesn't have a role, but, but that role is more basic. They fund basic research and then the market drives it, it forward. And that it's a trade-off worth making because we're supercharging human beings' drive to status and drive to attain 
and harnessing it to create the technology that, that moves our species forward. How do you think about that? I think it's just false. I mean, I've spent my life in the main research institution in the world, MIT, and research labs. You just go into a research lab. People aren't working. Maybe people are working 80 hours a week, but it's not to make money. Uh, they can make a lot more money elsewhere. It's because of the excitement of the work, the challenge of solving problems. That's what drives people. Has no relation to the incentive to gain power. Yes, both are incentives, but they're totally different. And I think if you look at your children, you mentioned this constant why, why, why. Yeah, that's what people want. They want to understand the world. They see problems. The problem can be, let's say, finding how the COVID virus works. That drives people to work hard because they want to understand it. They may not make any money out of it. Most of them never do. I mean, we have a distorted system which encourages them to try to make money out of it, but that's not what's driving it in the lab. Or it can be, uh, I'm terrible at mechanical things. I can't get anything to work, so I, my car isn't working. I take it to a mechanic. He sees something's wrong, sees a problem, wants to solve the problem, takes skill, takes kind of intelligence I don't have, but just the interest in solving the problem drives it. Of course, he gets paid, but that's part of the structure of the outside system. I don't think that's the driving force. You look at the development of technology, that's the way it happened. Take, say, the internet. It was actually going on in the labs where it was. Now, people were really interested in the problem of working out modes of interconnection, at first among scientists and more broadly. Most of them are unknown and make any money out of it. Same with the development of computers. Same with almost all technological development, even to the famous levels. And take, say, Einstein working in the patent office in Switzerland, thinking about what would you observe if you were traveling at the speed of light. He wasn't doing it to make money. That's the way everything from your children up to advanced research works. That's where technological development and scientific development takes place. Now, actually, this is distorted by social structures. So in the early 80s, government laws were changed so that universities could get patents and uh, researchers could get patents on the work that they were doing. Okay, that had a cheapening effect. It meant that you really were imposing a structure in which people were working in order to make money, not to solve problems. And I think, I don't know how to measure it exactly, but my impression is it had a cheapening effect on the nature of the university system. When you impose these external constraints that say you should be like what James Buchanan says you are, a person whose highest ideal is to be a master of slaves, well, you impose those outside structures, it does affect things. Oh, man. So, I don't know. Uh, I, think, I think there's two different definitions of what work is that... I want to talk about. If I was continuing this conversation with Chomsky right now, I would say, I would say Chomsky, uh, when you use the term work and the job contract, uh, the, the the way you describe the word work in my mind, I'm hearing the word drudgery. I'm hearing uh, something that you must do by force against your will that you don't like. Uh, but then there's another definition of what work is. And what about the definition that work is a set of actions a person must take in order to achieve all of their goals? A means of accomplishing one's goals. It doesn't matter if it's in pursuit of money or if it's in pursuit of uh, being interested. Normally... It's when someone becomes interested in something that they get good at it. And as soon as they get good at it, they 
learn that they can make money off of it and they can support themselves. What's wrong with that, Chomsky? Isn't that what freedom's all about? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? As long as you don't hurt me and you don't take my stuff, what difference should it make, Chomsky? Oh, I hate that he, he, either he doesn't see it or he refuses to believe it. And, you know, he, and he just gets done telling you here, like, I spent the majority of my life in the highest research institution in the country. Yeah, no, no, you said uh, in that statement, you know, you also said, I've never really worked in the private sector before. (laughs) You know, you're like Bernie Sanders. Oh, you made all your money writing books, right? You know? Maybe your uh, your uh, professor salary, you know, is enough for you. Maybe for some people it's not. Can you blame them if they, you know, have loftier goals and they want to make more money than whatever their job pays them? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that, Noam Chomsky? I would love to hear your response. If any of you can help me get Chomsky on my show, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would ask him to his face. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Um, lots to unpack. Lots, 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 lots going on. Lots to think about. Like I said, I, re- I listened to this whole thing probably four or five times and I mean, my brain just goes up and down and all around. I love it. I love being challenged. I love having to go over my ideas. I love not being so sure of anything anymore. Some of you that know me, I used to be that guy. I used to be the so, the so sure of myself guy. Uh, you know, part of that was back in the ego days when the when my ego ran the show. And... You know, like Reagan said, I've recently seen fit to to, to go another path. <laughs> you know, but staying open-minded, staying courageous, staying, staying interested, staying the course. I think it, it was Thomas Jefferson that said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. People, you got to stand the watch. You got to defend the principles that make you who you are, and that makes our society what it is. We got to start coming to some type of agreement, people. We got to at least find some level of common ground. We got to come from to. We got to come from the left and the right a little bit more to the center. Let's be centrist independents politically. What's your political affiliation? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? I am a centrist independent. I believe in pragmatism. I believe in cooperation. I believe in restraint. I believe in reasoned arguments. Trying to solve problems with the best intentions of the whole in mind. Remember that from Eric Fromm's book, The Sane Society? Intelligence and reason are not the same thing, people. Intelligence is your ability to manipulate your surroundings in order to increase your standard of living. But reason, people, reason has to have the best intentions of the whole in mind. I hope we start learning this stuff, people. For you, for me, for all of us. Thank you for listening. People, it's time for punk rock. And when we come back, we're going to rock out with another awesome punk rock song right here on the Politics and Punk Rock podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, people. 
Welcome back. So, hope you guys liked today's show. Um, Chomsky, deep guy. Um, hope you like the themes. Hope you like uh, how I organized all those clips to, to kind of paint a picture. <clears throat> you know, and I wanted to, the point I kind of wanted to get across today is, you know, it's possible to have nonpartisan views on specific issues. In fact, you should. This is my plea to all of you self-professed, self-proclaimed Democrats and Republicans out there. Please, for the love of God, or whatever God it is you pray to, please re-examine your relationship with your party. For all of us. For you, for me, for all of us. Start thinking about legitimate authority. What makes authority legitimate to you? How would you define it? Think of some examples. I don't know. I don't know what we got to do. I don't know what we got to do. Maybe it's too late. Maybe, maybe our screens got us. It's already, you know, the, the brave new Orwellian surveillance police state world. Dystopia is upon us, my fellow Americans. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? For me, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. All I know, people, is that I don't know nothing. All I know is that I don't know all I know is that I don't know nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that uh, all the philosophers of all the ages would agree with you, Operation Ivy. All I know, after hours and hours of reading and thinking and careful contemplation, is that I don't know nothing. <laughs> oh, that's it. This has been episode 28 of the Politics and Punk Rock podcast, dedicated to the man himself, Noam Chomsky. And, uh, you know, people like him are, 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 are going away, people. What are the intellectuals of the future going to look like? Will there even be intellectuals in the future? We shall see as the 21st century American idiocracy marches on. Thank you, good night, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>